from the city of brotherly love. This is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. You just arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your rock star wannabe host, David Strausser. This is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. Today, it's about accounting and talking to people. First, though, remember, please download the Shark Bite Biz app on Google Play Store on your Android device. And that's where you can find every single episode of the show, both audio and video episodes right there in the app. Plus, you hit that little menu button, you see Coffee Store, you can buy our fabulous coffee, Dead House Coffee, right there in the app. But if you don't want to download an app, you can do it just at deadhousecoffee.com. Just make sure you use the code SHARK. You'll get 20% off of your order. You'll also get the freshest coffee known on earth. Coffee that is roasted, sealed, and shipped within a 24-hour period directly to your doorstep. And we'll get all the proceeds to continue building the biggest and best show we possibly can. Now let's get back to today's show. We're going to have an open conversation about communication today in a world where the Elon Musk Twitter takeover changes by the hour and the public court of opinion is the topic of the day. I think this is an important conversation to have. Talking to people about differences is so important right now. We're also going to talk about Taxes and running a profitable micro gym. So who do we have today? None other than Mr. John Briggs. John Briggs is the founder of Insight Tax and Accounting and the author of Profit First for Micro Gyms. His accounting firm has more gym clients than any other firm in the country, as well as thousands of other client-driven businesses. And he is also the owner of a gym, GSL Fitness. Through all of this, he has learned that achieving a highly profitable business can be overwhelming, particularly with all the barriers and unknowns that new owners are forced to deal with. Entrepreneurs can quickly become stressed and burnt out and often sadly give up on the mission that they set out for. In much the same way that the body needs blood to survive, a business needs cash the lifeblood of the business, to stay healthy and to grow more resilient. So, hey, without further delay, let's bring John right on in here. Business strategy. John, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became Shark Bait. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be able to chat with you today. Oh, everybody's excited about talking about taxes, right? Pretty much, yeah. I'm, I'm the life of every crowd. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And real quick, before we jump into our first question, is uh, I have to call out the shirt that you have wearing. Can you show every, all of every... So those that are listening only, it is literally hashtag tax genius. And I love it for someone in an accounting firm. I mean, that that is amazing. That's an incredible shirt. And I, I'm not going to lie. I want one. I, I definitely want one of those. But um, anyways, first question right off the gate, right off the bat, we ask every single person, same exact thing. What's your experience? What's your background? What do you do? How'd you get there? Basically, tell us in a nutshell, what makes John Briggs, John Briggs? Well, I mean, so 
I have a master's degree in tax from BYU. And uh, when I was going through that process, it all seemed good. And I interviewed at a, or I, I worked at a big four accounting firm and it, you know, wasn't a great experience. Um, we might talk about that a little bit. I, I think what they do, the industry is really hard. One of my good friends, uh, Pat, he's the guy that got me the job that I work at now. He works at one of the the big four, I guess we'll name the, the company, KMPG. And so he works for them and he is like, oh my God, I thought, I thought Microsoft was bad with layers and bureaucracy and size and stuff. He's like, you ain't seen nothing till you work for KMPG. Yeah, and the minimum billable hours hours, eight months out of the year. It's, it's a bad scenario. I'm, I'm trying my hardest as an accounting firm to kind of show them there's a better way. But anyway, so I worked there when I graduated from college though, I had an opportunity to become a controller for a door-to-door sales company. And that was a really interesting learning experience. The company did $30 million in revenue the same year it declared bankruptcy. And so then I found myself out of a job. Uh, I decided, you know what, I have a master's degree in tax from one of the top accounting programs in the country. I might as well go back into it. I did enjoy the tax aspect. I just didn't love the work environment that uh, Deloitte is who I worked for put on us. So I went through that experience, was the controller, then kind of went with a partnership with a neighbor, went on my own and through lots of experiences with Uh, business partners and other accountants have kind of created my own philosophy on how I think accounting firms should work, um, how I think overall all businesses should treat their team. Um, And, you know, I remember being in a 10 by 14 office by myself doing everything. And now we have 35 team members. We're in a pretty big space here in Salt Lake City and uh, things have gone pretty good for us. You're, you're, You're the type of guest I love having on this show. And I've said it a million times. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having somebody like a Tony Robbins on this show. Tony invites open for you. But having somebody like you to me is way better because you're really down in the trenches. You've had to start from college, building your career, fighting, winning, losing. And you've seen all the the good and the ugly of business. And that has basically molded you into probably the closest thing you can get to be the perfect entrepreneur. Okay. Like every, everybody has areas that they can grow. I'm not saying you, you know, you don't, everybody, I do, I, everybody has shortcomings, but because of the experiences you had, those real life experiences I think it gives you that genuine authority to speak when you're talking about, hey, this is how a business should be run. Well, and I've certainly been through a lot of experiences that I would not want anyone to have to repeat. So I'm I love sharing those failures so that people can maybe avoid them. I love talking about failures. My first season uh, on this podcast, we had a business uh, in fact, we had two businesses, I think, between season one and season two, one from Hawaii, and I think one was from New Jersey or, or New York. But both of their owners were like, hey, with COVID, um, we're doing every single thing we can, but we don't know if we're going to be able to make it through or not. And they were genuinely worried. And, you know, their experiences now whether they ultimately succeeded or failed, it'd probably be good to do a follow-up with those businesses because it's been 18 plus months and see how they're doing. 
on the show. But whether they succeeded or failed, it helped, I think, people that listen to that show be able to grow either spurring ideas of what these companies were doing to try to stay alive, especially during a very turbulent time when nobody really knew what to do. Uh, you know, you, you had your business plan for 2020 and then March of 20, that got chucked out the window. And what did you do for the rest of 2020? doesn't matter if you worked for the big four or if you worked for yourself. I mean, you were winging it, essentially. Would you not agree? Totally. Um, since no one that I'm aware of who's alive has experienced anything like 2020, 19, 2020, 21 has been. Uh, yep. We're all kind of learning as we go. I think maybe... Just a little side note, I think everyone can be a little bit more polite if they remember that on their social media comments. Maybe we can just make ourselves a little bit less serious. You know, I it's funny that you said that. I had an episode that aired and, you know, these episodes that get aired in advance, but there's often nuance to discussions that we have on the show. And, you know, when you title a show, you obviously want to make it catchy or whatever. So that way you not that it's clickbaity. But that it's, uh, you know, draws interest, new viewers and people, right, that it's compelling that people want to click on it and listen to it. So mine was, why are store shelves still empty? And it was with a world leading supply chain expert, logistics, manufacturing, like cited in a million places, very, very talented woman and a good friend of mine, Lisa Anderson's. And people were responding to that on Twitter, like, where the heck do you live? You need to move. And my response was like, hey, I've been trying to get an Xbox Series X since it came out. And I can't get it from Walmart, from Best Buy, anywhere. I can't get it RT NVIDIA, RTX. So they're thinking that I'm trying to say one thing, when in reality, we're talking about the chip shortage, you know, and like how... For example, in a car, uh, a lot of manufacturers, I, I think Mazda is one of them, and there are definitely other brands as well, too. But a lot of the newer models, they've taken the touch screen capability out of the monitors. And, you know, they're saying it's for safety, but in reality, it's because they can't get the chips for them to make them touch screen compatible. And that's kind of what we were referring to. But I mean, I got trolled so hard because of that. It's like, come on, listen to the episode. I mean, you all just read the headline and you think it's about something instead of actually listening to it and hearing what we're discussing and the challenges around it. So I think you have a very valid point with that. Yeah, I, I just want people to realize there's another side of the story and there's a possibility that we don't have all the facts on our side of the story. So we made an interpretation. Maybe someone else made a different interpretation. Let's hear them out. Let's just be more curious as human beings instead of ruthlessly just, it, man, it's bad sometimes. Doesn't matter what side they're on, but there's just so many people that are stuck on one side or the other side, and they just don't want to hear what the other side says. And, you know, there's a cost to that. I think it's a cost to our country. There's a cost to our society. And there's a big business cost to that as well, too. I mean, it is costing people jobs. It's costing businesses 
businesses. Like I remember, I'm not going to say the name of it or get too detailed because again, you know, this isn't a a political show. It's a business show, but politics regulations do sometimes cross into the world of business. There was a spice manufacturer in the state of Wisconsin who said something very disparaging towards one political party during uh, Martin Luther King uh, Day weekend and, you know, ended up costing them, I think it was like 40,000 plus customers or something like that. I mean, it was really, really bad. And I, I think when you put yourself in that bubble and you start mixing that your whole life is all about politics, again, right, left, whatever you are, if that's all your business or your life's about, I mean, it's like, come on, get a better life. That's so boring. Go out, live a little bit, do something different. Talk with someone that is different than what you think. You know, I, I think that's how you need to live. That's how we live. We're a multicultural, multi-ethnicity, you know, household here. And, you know, we live life to the fullest. And it's by talking with people, you know, and people that we don't even always agree with, but we're still good friends with these people. It's crazy what happens when you learn how to communicate. <laughs> yeah. It, Sorry, that was a little bit of a rant there, John. You hit on one of my nerves that I've been trying to get out. <laughs> if anyone hasn't watched, um, they need to watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix. That type of aspect uh, is not contributing to this idea that we can be humans, we can have differences and actually still like each other. I don't have to agree with the person's position, but as a human being, I should be respectful enough to listen to them and let them say their piece without me jumping down their throat, calling them whatever names that people call each other these days. And that's why I love having my own podcast or if you're watching on YouTube, it's my own vodcast because, you know, it is my platform to bring on other voices. And it's mostly mostly business discussions that we're having um you know some in the social area but they're they're usually minimized i'd say it's like 90 percent business with most people that are on the show but it allows me to talk with them and basically have an open discussion and you know it's really cool because i love it when someone comes on the show and they challenge my viewpoints of how i think sales should be or marketing or how a business should be wrong and they'd be like no david you're wrong and i'll tell you why and then they tell me their story and i'm very open-minded so there's a lot of times that i'd say 60 70 percent of the people that are on the show we're we are of the same mindset and we generally agree with the same strategies, more or less, but then the other 30, 40%, that's where they push me to change my thinking. And that's awesome because that's what this show is for. This show was built around personal growth, professional growth, and business growth. And you can only do that if you pushed away that you're currently thinking and the way that you're currently doing things to do them better. That actually reminds me. I, a lot of my growth in the business has come because I've let people with differing opinions share them and I was open to them. Earlier in my career, I felt like because we were getting a lot of new tax clients with their complaint was the previous guy 
you know, has, has handed them off a hundred times and they didn't feel like they, they, they were cared for. And so I'm like, okay, we got to establish the relationship up front. So our accountants are going to do the sales. They're going to meet with the leads. They're going to create the relationship from day one. And it worked out okay. But then I had a business mentor challenge me and her idea was all about, you need a sales force, someone who just focuses on sales. And I'm like, no, a sales guy can't sell taxes. He doesn't know anything about taxes. What, how is he going to sell? This is so funny that you're saying this. What my, so I, 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 we were speaking earlier and I told you ERP and that's my day job vision 33. And we do Sage intact and we do SAP, uh, SAP business one and SAP business by design on the Sage side, because that's a pure financial solution. So for like SaaS companies, professional service companies, people like that, that just need a best of breed financial solution. For that, that sales role, we hired actually someone with a, an accounting degree that likes accounting, is really good at accounting, but was like, I don't want to be a CPA. And I think I can make more money if I sold accounting software than if I was an accountant somewhere at one of the big four. And he probably could have got hired at one of the big four if he really stride for that stuff. And we brought him on as a sales rep and a little bit slower of a start, you know, but now he's about uh, 10 months in and he should have his uh, third deal closed this month, hopefully uh, within the next uh, by 228. So we'll be pretty happy on him. But that that I just wanted to kind of jump in with that story there, because I think that it reiterates what you were just saying right there. Yeah. And for us, we beta tested it for a month and shocker with a little bit of training of the pain points that our potential clients have. Um, he brings in clients at a higher dollar value than our accountants did. And he has a higher conversion rate than our accountants did. And it's been gangbusters and he loves it because we have a really great marketing machine that just, we just get a lot of leads. And so now also I freed up time for my accountants who now don't have to sit in sales meetings. They just now have to meet with the clients who've actually signed up. And so because I let someone challenge me and I was open to it, not saying why well, no better, I know, right, you're wrong. Uh, my business is now significantly better because I listened to a different point of view. And look, there's times in my life I listen to a different point of view and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't work out and I don't do it. But the point is, let's let's listen to each other. Right, right. Now, I think so. Now, let me ask you this. You, you hired a salesperson. They went out there. How many did you hire? One or more than one? We hired one at a time. Um, the first one, so we beta tested with um, an accountant spouse who's a full-time salesperson who was like, yeah, I have some excess capacity. I'll, I'll do this so you guys can test it out. We hired a guy, he lasted for about two months and now we're on our second one. He's been with us for more than a year and he's, he's, he's loving it and we love him. Now in the beginning though, see, this is the one thing that I like to preach. And I always tell my wife this with food or restaurants too. It's like, you really got to go to a place three times, I think, before you can either say, yeah, this place is good or this place stinks. Okay. Uh, because if they're good two out of three times, 
then I'm like, okay, you know, they're probably going to be consistent. Then, uh, then uh, we'll continue with them until something changes, especially once we first moved here to Philly. I mean, we were literally dialing all the pizza places until oh, we got one. Okay. And they were good three out of three. Now we've been with the same pizza place and they get a lot of money. They get about 125 out of us a week because we eat pizza and cow's odds like once a week. Um, but uh, they, uh, you know, we've been with them for almost three years that we've lived here. And out of the three years that we lived here, uh, you know, we probably had about 40 orders a year. I would say uh, so 120 orders. I would say 100 out of 120 ended up being perfect. No problem without any. And so we were right. That's kind of how we do our beta testing. But I think the same methodology kind of crosses over to business as well, too, to where you were trying something new. So what if it didn't work with that spouse, the the spouse's um you know, free time that really didn't have all the extra bandwidth that you thought and things didn't go as you were planning? I mean, would you have just shut things down or would you have tried another sales rep? Yeah, it's a good question because not everything did go smoothly. There was lots of hiccups. We had leads that should have been responded to and they weren't. And we had this, you know, it's like, man, you're kind of doing me a favor. I'm offering to pay you. But anyways, you still work through it because again, in this case, letting myself be challenged to a different possible scenario to run my business, I saw the logic and I saw the importance of at least testing it out because you, I think anytime you're going to test something out, it's really important that you do it in a way that minimizes your risk as much as possible. And so in this case, I minimized my risk as much as possible, but we still tested it until we felt like we can make or we have enough data to actually make a conclusion off of it. That, and that, uh, and, and, and conclusion that it works. And I'll tell you what, you know, I, I've, oh, I've always been taught when you go for a job interview for sales growing up, when they ask you what motivates you, never say money. And I'm like, you know, now that I am the executive that hires sales reps and stuff like that, that is the answer I want to hear, you know? I want a sales rep telling me like, David, I want to make 500,000 a year. Okay. I want to make a million a year. I want to go out and sell so much that you guys have to hire more people to implement the projects. I want somebody that's coin driven that will sell it for that higher margin and stuff like that. Now, does it happen overnight? No. You know, again, Michael, Michael, sorry for, um, uh, he listens to all my episodes, so sorry for using you as an example, bud. But with him, his first couple of deals, because again, counting background, he had some sales experience, but he wasn't at the level of what you know we would typically hire for. He was greener, but it was a new product for Vision 33, and we had a specific profile. He fit everything, just a little greener. So we're like, okay, we'll, we'll take it. And we ended up having to give higher discounts. And, uh, you know, for the the first deal, now he got that first deal closed and it's like, bam, he understands it. It makes sense. Now, you know, he's in the process. The second one's coming in now and the third one should be coming in now as well, too. And it moves quick because then once you get that confidence and you understand and everything kind of goes full circle, 
things click. But he's also somebody that, again, you know, is coin driven, that is driven off of the potential of making as much money as they can. And for each individual, that's different. Some people, it might be, hey, I want to make 80,000 a year and they're happy. Other people, it's 200,000. You know, it could be a million. Uh, in my case, it is a million. When I'm making a million, then I'll be like, okay, I'm good. Maybe 1.5. So I have a million after taxes. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the coin driven part that I think that's a good quality for a sales rep to have if you're a hiring manager. What do you say on that kind of mentality? You know, I'm just thinking about what you've been sharing about Michael. Do not try on, to hire Michael from me. I will. He's mine. I don't have his contact <laughs> info, so I can't. Um, <laughs> oh, I, you will, because he'll be emailing you all the links oh, nice. for the episode afterwards. Oh, <laughs> having hired and been through a lot of hires and hiring mistakes, I'm willing to bet Michael has a tremendous attitude as well. A very good positive attitude. Because the way I think about it, so there's, if I think about a pie and a person coming into my organization, there's three things that I'm really focused on. Do they have the skill set? Do they have a, a good mindset, good attitude? And are they a cultural fit? Uh, yeah, the skill set you can train. Um, cultural fit, you know, the, there's a bigger range there. I, we try our hardest to influence attitude and help people who maybe have a tendency to be more negative or something and help them grow within the company. But there's a certain level of just people need to have good attitudes. Cause in this case, he, you go through the first deal, you have to offer a discount to get it through. Maybe there are some blunders there. I mean, for sales guys, especially they have to have tough skin, but that's not other positions need it too. Like we have accountants who aren't doing sales, but their first couple of tax returns might be really, really terrible. And we have to go and sit down and like point out to them all the mistakes that they made, which could be a really long list. Do they have a right attitude? Like, great, this is an opportunity to learn or are they approaching it from a standpoint of, oh, now they think I'm an idiot. Right, right, right. And, and I think that's all about that. Kind of like when you and I were talking before the show, setting the expectations. I mean, you, you've got to set the proper expectations so that way they kind of know what you're walking into to where it's like, hey, we were trying to coach you. We're trying to treat you. And that's where somebody like Michael, you know, he has that perfect attitude. And the one area that I tell everybody that he excels with. And I'm like, just stick with him, stick on the path, trust me, because he executes. I go out, I'll tell him, Michael, do this. And a couple of times he comes back, he's like, David, are you, are you sure? This is what you want me to do and how you want me to do it? I'm like, yes, Michael, just trust me, do it. And he goes, he does it and he comes back. Holy cow, David, it worked, you know? And he, he comes back surprised, but that's him learning. And he, he, I give him real good credit because when he does execute things, especially on things that he's a little unsure on, but he's trusting me as a mentor for him, you know, he, he doesn't do it half-ass. Like he will go all in. Now you had a good list that you brought up about those three qualities. For me, I think those three qualities are givens. Okay. But the only other thing that I would add is when it's a sales rep, I have two other items that I add to the list. And these are actually the predominant two, because I mean, the first three things that you mentioned, if they didn't have those, I mean, they, they'd be gone. Okay. They, I, they wouldn't even be considered. Now, if they have those three qualities, 
then I need to know two things. One, can they manage a sales cycle? The sales cycle for the ERP accounting software world is so complicated because oftentimes a sales rep like Michael, for example, can't sell it alone. He needs to bring me in as his general manager. I mean, company is going to write you a $150,000 check. They want the warm and fuzzies. Like who's behind Michael? He's not some weird lone wolf just trying to get our banking info, right? You know, they want to they want to feel that there's them. And then you have the demo people and you have the, um, you know, director of professional services. We call them DPS that might need to come in and answer some specific implementation questions and stuff like that. So from the sales side, we look at it. Can you manage a sales cycle? Do you know, can you identify when you need each piece of the puzzle? And then in addition to knowing when you need it, are you able to coach these people, especially if they're going to be in the same call? Hey, say this, but not that. This is your area, not their area. This is what we got to watch out for and make sure everybody's on the same page so that you can ultimately win the deal. The second part of it is, can they build personal relationships? That countless deals I've won over the years that I was the more expensive. And when you get to our software, so much of the software, it's like give or take. Yes, we may do this better, but the competitor does this a little bit better, you know? And it's, you know, it's just a bucket of which one check marks most boxes. And for some customers, maybe we're check marking different boxes, but for, you know, two or three solutions, all the check you know, the, the check marks are, are there for each solution. Then it comes down to who do they feel is going to give them more value and take care of them more. And it's really up to the sales rep to be able to build that personal relationship with their main contact, hopefully the decision maker. But sometimes in our world, it's not the decision maker and you've got to build it with the influencer. And who can be, can they build that relationship? If they cannot manage a sales cycle, or build a relationship, then even if they hit the other three qualities, uh, they wouldn't be of much value for us. And I don't know, I, I've kind of staked my career on those two qualities as a sales rep, uh, myself going through many sales cycles for a lot of different industries. It was always about managing the sales cycle, setting expectations, and then building relationships, getting people to like me, saying the thing that everybody's thinking, but nobody wants to say. And even if I look corny or quirky saying it, I'll say it just to get their laugh. And it just kind of builds the trust that, you know, David, I think he's going to take care of us. And I think he's going to be the best solution to go with. And that's what we try to do. Do you agree with those statements with those two qualities for sales rep? I can see how that plays when you hire your next sales rep are you going do you think that you might be looking at some of those qualities there too i would um because to me managing a sales cycle i i use the word organization but i think we mean the same thing like are you able to stay on top of what the next tax and what the next task needs to be so that's the we don't lose momentum and obviously the personal connection the ability to be human and not a salesperson you don't want them to feel like they're talking to a salesperson you want them to feel like they're just talking to a person who's trying to help. Well, I mean, to me, it's okay if they feel like, at least in my world, they expect, hey, can the software do this? Sales rep, yes. Okay. 
but then if they ask the question to the technical advisor, uh, hey, does the software does do this? Uh, well, yeah, it can, but you know, it's going to be a little bit of a workaround. So they typically trust the technical advisor a little bit more. So we try to separate the sales from the tech, even though everybody's working on the same page. And that's where being able to manage a sales cycle is so important because you've got to make sure that the experts you're bringing in in front of your customer know what end goal you're going for. Does that make sense? Yeah. And for us, we just know that sometimes because the sales guys will say yes, when it's a maybe um, we, right. Yeah. Um, ours does too. And so the first meeting we have designed when they meet the actual accountant that they're going to be assigned to, it's kind of a manage expectations review. We're all on the same page with services and what you've been told. And so it's helped because um, we actually would prefer our sales guy to say maybe instead of yes, when the answer is maybe, because uh, we just, that's, we, it's worked better for us in the long run. Well, yeah, no, definitely. And with us as well, as well too, getting them to do what you want and what they'll actually do are two different things. And that's another reason why we have you know, you got to remember, though, you're getting into, you know, sometimes implementations that could be in the millions of dollars with what we sell and that are extremely complicated. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, it could be integrations, a lot of implementation that we're doing with all the business processes and trying to automate that stuff. And when we're doing that, that's where, you know, the short answer is yes. It can do it. Now, what the sales reps not going to probably tell them is, is that it doesn't do it exactly how they would want it to happen, but it can happen. And, you know, that's something my, I have an old school an, an old school sales rep on the SAP side. I love the guy. He's been in the industry for over 30 years, but he was very much like, okay, here, we're, we're just going to sell you 80 hours. Let's see how far that gets you. And then we'll talk about it. Then. And it's like, no, that's an escalation right off the bat. So that was like my very first thing we had to fix. But now his sales, I mean, if you don't get an escalation in our business, you're not selling enough. That's the bottom line. Uh, it's software development, you know, implementation. It's always going to happen eventually. But, um, you know, it comes down to really just uh, try to scope it out as best as you can and, you know, set in the right expectations and just making sure that, again, like you said, that that first phone call you have, just trying to make sure everybody's on the same page. And that's why we do a kickoff call in the beginning of the project. And it's kind of like, hey, this is what we learned from sales. Is this accurate? If it's not speak now or else it's going into phase two and we make sure expectations are right and now i mean his projects really they don't escalate you know he's selling good projects now but it was a process to get that turned around took a lot of work um a lot of time but i'm happy that he did because he is a he's a really good sales rep he, you know he just i think he just needed some hand holding despite his experience he just needed his hand, the handholding on how to sell the value of professional services. And he never really had anybody to hold him, I think, really accountable for that aspect of it. 
So now he has someone that holds him accountable and holds his hand. And by me filling that gap for him, it's made him an all around, you know, high producer for the company. So I know we've been talking about general business, sales, all that stuff, which is great. I love it. But I mean, I got to take advantage. You are an accounting. You have an accounting firm. Let's talk about taxes. So, you know, first off, I've got to ask you the one of the, the big things that everybody has seen on the news and probably griped about on social media as well, too, is the the Venmo, PayPal payment, $600, whatever it is. Can you explain that to us? What does that mean for businesses? What does it mean for individuals? First of all, I don't even know if they're going to be able to pull it off. They likely don't have enough information to properly do it. But the IRS has a requirement that if provider of services is paid more than $600, technically that person is supposed to send them a 1099 to report, hey, this income passed hands and it was a business income. But 600 from one person or 600 for all accumulative transactions? So from one person is what it's supposed to be. Now, Venmo and the PayPals are in a unique scenario where they see the income received from a bunch of people. Now, so like, for example, merchant processing. Um, if you have a merchant processing account, which is a company that collects your Trans, uh, they do the credit card transactions. They send you as the business a 1099K every year. So I might have a client who paid me $400, but collectively they send me the whole amount. And so PayPal and Venmo right now with what's going on, the IRS is saying we're treating them basically like a merchant processor because I have all this money going back and forth. For example, my son, he did not like, who's the producer of this show, so I should cut him some slack, but he did not like the speed of internet at his college. So we ended up getting him um, T-Mobile, 5G internet, uh, like their home Wi-Fi system. And uh, we just plugged it in his college and it works and it's 10 times faster than he gets from his college internet. Okay, but the deal was like, hey, you've got to pay me the $50 a month for this each and every month. Uh, and he just sends me over the money in Venmo. Throughout the course of the year, that's gonna equal to be $600. Does that mean that I'm gonna end up getting a 1099K because my son is reimbursing me for the cost of my uh, of the home internet that I'm incurring? I mean, it's a great question that we all would love to know the answer to. Tactic, the technical answer is no, you should not. How, but, you know, the IRS forces people to do certain things and then they have to try to figure it out, which, by the way, increases our costs. So thank you for adding to inflation, IRS, uh, because now they're going to have to raise their prices just to keep their own profit margins. No, but that's what I'm saying. There's, I don't think there's a feasible way for them to go through every single person and identify based on what is typed into that box as Venmo forces you to put something, an emoji or letters. There's no way they're going to be able to tell, oh, this was two people just transacting. They went to lunch together. One person's reimbursing them. It's a gift. Like, There's no way they're going to be able to tell. And it's going to left the, and if they do send them out, just blanket, it's going to leave a lot of people holding the bag, trying to justify 
what the the expenses are. And I don't know about you, and I'm not a constitutional expert, but I mean, right to to privacy. I mean, we we do have the what is it, the Fourth Amendment, I believe, that protects us from government intrusion. And if they're getting a list of every single transaction we make just because of the fact that it's digital and it's not in cash. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't feel comfortable about that. And it's not because I'm doing anything nefarious or anything like that, but I don't feel that they should have that right to, you know, for me to have to defend myself that this was not income, that this was a reimbursement for something. No, I'm with you. I also prefer freedom and privacy over anything else. I do know that there definitely is a give and take in a system like we have where they we do have some limitations and some controls over things like that. And we've accepted them. It feels like they the government keeps pushing it further and further. I don't love. But again, they're just it's this whole Venmo scenario. They're going to cause a nightmare because if you ended up getting that, obviously you're going to dispute it. It just feels like it's a tax for the poor, I feel. I feel I feel lower income people are going to suffer from this the most because they cannot afford the best tax advice. A lot of people try to do their own taxes with free systems. And I think uh, they're the ones that are going to suffer from from that policy the most. Whereas if they were just trying to raise revenue and raise taxes, you know, pretty easy. Stop bailing out large corporations that have billions and billions in profits. That's the way I view it. You know, here's an interesting scenario. Um, I just did a return today. The client didn't pay anything in. He had a lot of business expenses uh, and he's getting a $10,000 refund. On one hand, the government's trying to benefit the middle to poor class as much as possible, but there's got to be a limit. And if we just eliminated giving free money to people and just saying, Hey, doesn't look like you any taxes, which is still a good outcome for that person. Instead of here's 10 grand. Not only do you not owe taxes, we're going to give you $10,000. Where's it coming from? Well, no, I, I have heard the same argument. I've heard the same argument. And to be honest, I used to be more of a believer in exactly what you were saying as far as, hey, if you have a, you know, zero dollar tax bill, how come you're getting $10,000 back? However, I also do think about it this way, too, that every single thing that they're purchasing is, you know, has some kind of tariff or federal tax or something like that state tax that's built into the prices Either it's already built into the price or it's added additionally like a sales tax. So it's not exactly like the people have went, you know, tax free completely. No, they haven't. I mean, there's a hundred, there's literally hundreds of taxes. Um, I am just referring to income taxes, of course, but yes, you're correct. There are lots of other taxes and we all pay them. So let's talk about this right here because taxes, it's one of those it's one of those uh, weird subjects that it's often like with the Venmo situation. It's hard to tell the truth from fiction. Can you tell us maybe some of the biggest myths surrounding 
taxes, please. The the first one is just because you get an IRS letter doesn't mean it's correct. The IRS, while they're in, they are to enforce the tax code, it is not their job to interpret the tax code. And the letters you get often are generated from computer technologies that a human being isn't even touching. It's an automatic system that cranks out. In fact, they're the it no one's familiar with it. There's an organization called the AICPA and they're kind of like a very large organization that has a lot of political power. I've got to, I got to mention this real quick. Sage Intact, the solution that we do is the only certified AICPA software solution out there. They're the preferred uh, accounting software solution. So I had to throw that out there. Well, so you know, if if you're a member of the AICPA, you can kind of approach them and say, here's some stuff going on. And if enough of their members, CPA members are saying the same thing, they go to Congress and say, hey, so like we have so many people right now getting letters from the IRS with like collection notices and things like that. And the only reason it's happening is because the IRS hasn't processed things. Normally by January, they have a a typical backlog of about a million tax returns that they still need to get through. That's a normal thing. This year it was 7 million. As of last week, the last article I read says it's currently 24 million returns that are backlogged. And so the AICP is like, can you stop sending out these fake incorrect notices? Like just shut off your freaking system. Um, so that's the that's the number one myth that comes to mind. I know that for most people, because they don't deal with the government on a daily basis, when you get that letter, it can be terrifying. Like, oh my gosh, I, I'm on their radar. I don't want to be on the radar. What does this letter say? And then you open it up and you're like, what is this Chinese? Is this hieroglyphics? I don't understand this language. Like it's not written as if it's human being talking to each other. Totally true because I ended up getting a weird letter um, last year was an odd year. Usually for some reason I have to pay in, it seems like two to 3000 additional each year. No idea why I have everything set up the way it should be. It just, something's just off. But last year with starting up the podcast and starting uh, the business, I guess it'd be 2020 with buying all the equipment and stuff like that. I actually ended up getting a small return because I was able to write that all off, uh, which is the first time in years I got a return. And I guess it was delayed by like what seems like six months before they they gave me the money. And then I ended up getting like uh, a thing in the mail saying like, like I couldn't even understand that. And I'm a business savvy person. But it was basically like, hey, because we held your money for so long, uh, you ended up getting like four dollars worth of interest. And that I like I actually had to send up my accountant like, what does this mean? Decipher this because it's so confusing. And it's funny that that I mentioned that because literally like a, a week or two ago, I did get a, um, a 1099. I don't know if it was 1099 R or miscellaneous or K or whatever, I forget, but it was for that interest for like the $4 and 32 cents or whatever it was. That's insane. Yeah. We've gotten that before where a client will email me or send it to me like mad at me. I, it looks like I owe some money, but you better take care of this. And I'm like, actually, uh, they're giving you uh, additional money because they held your money too long. Yeah. Yeah. So any other myths around the, uh, 
the taxes? The other myth is that the, the tax breaks that you hear about that some people get mad about that rich people are taking advantage of, that somehow it's exclusively for them. Um, the, the tax code is for all American taxpayers, regardless of income. It is super long. It's like 77,000 pages at this point. And it is nothing but exception upon exception upon exception. I, I think some of the the argument, though, with that, I hear, and you can answer this with your the rest of your response then, too, is that with the rich people, yeah, the tax code's for everybody, but they actually have the money to buy the accountants that can help them take advantage of all those exceptions. Yeah, and that's honestly just the mindset difference between, I don't know how to say this, I hope this isn't offensive, between people who know how to invest money and those who don't. You know, there for sure, there are certain scenarios, if you're a W-2 income earner and you have a mortgage, maybe some charitable contributions, your tax outcome is black and white. There's not, a there's, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. As soon as you get into business income, most of the tax code is related to business income, what are business expenses and things like that. And for those people who aren't rich, it really just comes down to kind of be going back to your sales guy, uh, Michael, the example of, like, you want me to try this? Oh my gosh, it worked out. Invest in a professional. If you have any sort of business income and you doubt this, they should be saving you more money in taxes than what you pay them. And, and that's just, that's just how it is. Another point that I think should be brought up is I get tired about hearing, no, Elon Musk is so rich, you know, and he doesn't pay the taxes. Truth be told, I mean, cash flow, yeah, he's rich. He's way richer than I am and probably ever will be with actual cash. But I mean, his money is in wealth and what Tesla's worth and SpaceX and those other companies, you know, if those companies were to plummet tomorrow because the world decides they want to cancel Elon Musk, I mean, most of that wealth evaporates, you know what I mean? And that's where I think a wealth tax does not make sense, um, you know, in, in those regards, because it's not a realized gain until it's actually cashed in. You know, I'm thinking Dogecoin, you know, like I bought $25 worth of Dogecoin when it first came out in Robinhood. And then one night I'm looking at it and it's like, wow, this is worth uh, $1,500. And that's right when the Wall Street bets thing then was taken off and it went up to be worth a lot more. But at that point, you know, if I if I didn't sell it, Okay. And my investment went up. Okay. And it's gone back down from what it was with its all time high as well, too. So in that, in their scenario, I should have been taxed when it was at its highest. Uh, and then what, when it's at its lowest, are you going to give me a refund then? Like you get what I mean? It just gets too complicated, too mucky. It is complicated. And I also, I dislike those conversations when people don't look at the full comprehensive picture. You already talked about this. I was talking about income tax earlier and you're like, yeah, but they pay this other stuff. Someone like Elon Musk or other wealthy people, while they may have a way to, you know, utilize strategies so their income tax is low or zero, payroll tax, property tax, personal property tax based on, I don't know if people know this, but like 
most counties in the U.S., if you have a business asset, you get to pay the county an additional tax just because you're using it in your business. So this desk that my monitor is sitting on, I paid sales tax on this desk. And now for the next five years, I also get to pay Salt Lake County a personal property tax because I'm using it in my business. So those businesses that rich people own are paying an astronomical amount of taxes. Payroll tax, they pay 7.65% payroll tax just because they're saying, I want this person to work for my company and provide value for me. And the government says, cool, I'll take 7% from you. I'll take 7% from them. And we get 15.3%. And, uh, yeah, you know, thanks. You're never seeing that money again. And when you have a million dollars of payroll plus 7% on a million dollars is no small chunk of change. I think people oftentimes forget about that. They're, you know, they talk about it, it, it's funny, you know, it's whichever way it goes back, I think, to where we kicked off the conversation with communicating and talking, because whichever way people view that it'll give them the advantage, they'll use, oh, you know, X and X paid 7% tax, you know, or uh, they'll use dollars if it makes their point of view look better. You know what I mean? They'll sw swap them out uh, either way, depending which side of the aisle they are on and what point they're trying to make. And that's just crazy. David, to me, it's just all crazy talk. <laughs> but anyways, Judd, hey, this has been fun. We talked about a lot of stuff, man. Yeah, we covered kind of the gamut of stuff. Yeah, yeah, we did. Did you enjoy yourself? Yeah, it was great. It was always fun chatting. Exactly. And hopefully your audience <laughs> got some good stuff out of this. Oh, they definitely got a few good things out of this. Hopefully neither of us get canceled afterwards. But yeah, you do have a book out from what I understand. You wrote a book, right? Yeah, I wrote a book called Profit First for Micro Gyms. Um, I bought a gym about three years ago, just sold it a few months ago. Um, but as a firm, we have more gym owner clients than in, any other tax firm in the country. And so I wrote a book based on the original concept of Profit First. It's a cash flow management system that gym owners needed. And I'm happy to say that our gym clients who used it prior to the COVID pandemic, all of them were able to stay in business because of this cash flow man management system. And so um, if you're a gym owner or you know a gym owner, and if not, the principles still apply to all businesses. It's just the examples are for gym owners in the book. For but. micro gyms, yeah. And that's at ProfitFirstMicroGyms.com, right? ProfitFirstForMicroGyms.com, yep. Okay, for micro gyms. And we'll have that link down below as well as for Insight Tax. How can people reach out to you for your CPA, your tax, your accounting, and just reach out to you in general as well? Yeah, our website's the best, insightstax.com, and we spell it to incite a riot because we believe in causing action, which is what the word actually means. So insighttax.com, we actually have a ton of great resources on our blog. I try to not be long-winded in my posts because I know that most people don't love the topic of taxes. Right, right, um, right. So we always try to get to, this, to the point and we share as many golden nuggets as we can. So if they're looking for some good tax tips, check out our blog. And then, of course, the Contact Us page if you want to chat more. Okay, perfect. Hey, John, thank you so much for coming on. This has been amazing. Definitely, you know, I want to get you on next year so we could talk about the Venmo thing again and see how it actually played out. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Thank you. 
Cheers. Thank you. Wow, that was such an incredible chat with John, right? First, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked those warm and fuzzies, do me a favor. Hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out, because you know Shark Bite Biz is the greatest kept secret in the world of small business, please share us out to your network, get us out to your friends, your colleagues, your family, whoever it may be, and share it out wherever you dwell on the interwebs, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Minds, Rumble, Odyssey, all those places you can find us. Share us out there. I'd love nothing more than to see John Briggs and Shark Pipe Biz out there trending. Now let's get back to our rock star guest, John. Okay, a couple things. First, we usually don't chat so much about topics like these, like having an open conversation on this show. There's a lot of other places you can get that info. But more and more businesses being driven by political views these days. And we kind of thought that it was a valid topic to kind of talk about and just have that open fluid conversation with as i've always said sunlight is the best disinfected and if you have crazy people on the other side of you try compassion and understanding where they're coming from before you just start blocking people from your life or your business completely as americans we've got to remember there's more that holds us together than separates us and that's some food for thought for you all On some of the other topics that John and myself talked about, running a business is tough, okay? We've heard this time and time again on this show. You may be amazing at running a gym, but are you good at doing some of those other tasks like doing the books or managing cash flow? Probably not. Some people probably are, you know? Other people, it's not their cup of tea. Nobody is the best at everything, and that's where every business owner needs to put their ego aside and learn when to embrace others, okay? Other experts and other opinions to help them achieve growth. Think outside the box. You do not know everything. I mean, maybe you do. There are a few people that do know everything, and, you know, God bless them, but Most people do not, and that's where, as a business owner, your greatest strength is leaning on a circle of experts that are around you. That's where John and his company and his experience comes into play, helping fill that critical gap so that many business owners, they can actually focus on growing their business instead of worrying about managing cash flow or taxes or all those other things that typical business owners struggle with. So, hey, awesome stuff, John. Thank you so much for sharing your mission and having such a candid conversation with us. I've got to admit, I really loved it. Question of the day. Do you surround yourself with the best of the best? Leave a comment down below. I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Do you want to be on the show? We'll be starting a live stream show soon. Interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, hit that little join button for $3 a month. You can become a baby shark and help our channel grow. But if not, head right on over deadhousecoffee.com. You'll get the freshest coffee on earth that is roasted, sealed, and shipped within a 24-hour period directly to your doorstep. And if you use the code SHARK, you'll save 20% as well as you'll help this channel continue to grow. 
Y'all know this by now, but I'll tell you again. I'm David Strausser. This is Shark Bite Biz, and we'll see you all next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story. 